Impossible. How often do we hear that? You know, the written definition of the word is not capable of happening or not able to be done. To walk around the entire earth on foot. It's impossible. You know, now that I think about it, I'm sure there have been situations where people proved impossibilities to be possible. Alexander Graham Bell. I guarantee at some point, his idea about the telephone, he heard rumors that it was not only ridiculous, but it was impossible. What about the Wright brothers? What if the Wright brothers had believed that their idea of one day flying like birds was impossible? You know what our problem may be? Maybe we rely too much on the facts of reality and statistics and theories. You know, science has answers. What if there's more to it than that? Does anyone trust in their faith when things really seem impossible? Jesus said all things are possible, everything, to him who believes. Do you believe that? Because I'll be the first one to admit, when things really get difficult in my life, I find it so tough to really trust in my faith. Jesus didn't say, if you really think about the possibilities, most things may happen. No, he said all things. You know, we sit back as a society and tell people that their dreams are impossible when Jesus tells us that all things are possible to him who believes. I can become whatever God has destined me to become. People said a man couldn't rise from the grave. He was beaten beyond recognition, had his clothes ripped off his back and had his hands nailed down, nailed down to a cross and left to die a sinner's death. He was pronounced dead, thrown into a borrowed tomb and the world gave up on everything that he had stood for. But. Three days later, he took this world's negative, closed-minded mentality and attitude and turned it all upside down. So the next time we even think about using the words, I can't, we need to remember the Son of God stepping from death to life, overcoming the grave, and fulfilling the most impossible feat in the history of man. It really is simple. Only truly believing in the word that all things are possible is when things won't ever really seem impossible. So if you can relate to this, like I can, a lot of times we hear the world telling us that we cannot achieve the dreams and aspirations that we have for our lives. When at the same time, Jesus tells us biblically that all things are possible and whatever promises that God has for us, they will be because nothing is impossible. This morning, I'm going to speak words to you. I'm not going to preach to you. When Pastor Jack came to me and said, hey, um, I just want to know if you're available to preach on this particular Sunday, you can preach on whatever you want. I said, okay, yeah, I'm available. And I had no clue what I was going to preach on. And this week when I sat down in the office, I really began to hear what the Lord was saying. And I heard the words this, your promise is coming. It's hard for us to grasp in a world of impossibilities, right? That our promise is coming. 
says it's pretty easy to say, but it's hard to grasp. And so as I spend some time in prayer, I want to begin this morning by simply declaring this to you, which I believe is from the heart of God. This morning, I declare to you prophetically that your promise is coming. The Lord says that it's not delayed. He hasn't forgotten it. And it's right on time according to his time. And he reminds you again that his promise is coming. You know, there was a man, a young man, actually a teenager, in the scriptures found in Genesis. His name was Joseph. Joseph was a cocky little guy. There was one point where he thought he had it all together because he had a God dream. I'll give you the timeline of Joseph, and we don't have all morning to go from beginning to end, but I'm going to patch it for you, patch it together really quick. So Joseph is the youngest of his whole entire family, one of the youngest, and he had a little bit of favoritism from his father, and his father looked at him a little bit more special than all the rest. And over time, the brothers caught on to that. They, they knew that Joseph was the favorite. But that wasn't all. What really, really was the straw that broke the camel's back was when Joseph had a couple of God dreams. And what I mean by God dreams is that God spoke to Joseph through dreams in his sleep. And in these God dreams, Joseph had seen that eventually there would come a point in time in his life. There was no really given timeline. There was no exact date. But, it, but God told him and said and showed him, Joseph, there will come a point where your entire family, including your father, will bow down before you. Because you will be in a position of great authority. And Joseph, being that young teenager, somewhat cocky, thinking he's got it all together, he runs to his brothers, and he opens up his mouth, and he says, hey, someday you're going to bow to me. And that just broke the camel's back. So now we got Joseph, the favorite one, and the one who's the God dreamer, and we're going to bow to him. Ooh, you know, and then on top of that, he takes it one step further, and he goes to his father, and he says to his father, which at that time was absolutely disrespectful, he goes to his father and he tells us, God gave me a dream and eventually you will have to bow before me. And what we really don't realize is a lot of times, according to understanding the Hebrew scriptures, Joseph's father and his brothers were in a culture of dream interpreters who knew how to interpret dreams biblically. So it's not just that they were upset that Joseph was being cocky and he seemed like a jerk and he seemed disrespectful. They knew the meaning of this dream and they realized that the reality would one day come that they would bow, that they would bend their knees to this son, to this brother. But they weren't about to have that. So one day we find Joseph and he's out in the field and his brothers come along, and they're aggravated at this point. They've had it. They're, they're just beyond irritated. They're beyond. I mean, they're ticked off. And they see the favorite one out there. And so they find this pit, and in, and in a nutshell, the story, they throw him into this pit. And they realize they threw him into the pit, and they think, okay. And one brother says, let's kill him. He was so full of hatred and so full of anger that he legitimately wanted to kill Joseph off. 
And the one brother steps in, he goes, no, 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 I don't think that's a good idea. Let's, let's, not, let's not kill him. Let's really think through this. It says in the distance that they saw this caravan coming. And what they did is they end up pulling Joseph out of this pit and they sell him into slavery. And they make up this story telling their father that, that Joseph was killed by an animal and, and that, you know, he's dead and all this. And the father goes through this whole process of mourning. Meanwhile, while Joseph is alive and he's somewhere off somewhere in another country as a slave. And it ends up that at the slave yard, he ends up getting picked by this man named Potiphar. And Potiphar says, I'll take this young man and he'll be the slave and I will take him in, into my home. And he ends up being the slave for Potiphar. And Joseph finds favor with Potiphar. And, and, and Potiphar says, you know what? I like you so much. And, and there's something about you that I enjoy that, you know, you're going to oversee my estate. You're going to oversee all of my land. You're going to oversee my household. And when I'm gone, you will take care of everything that I have. And there's a slight little problem. Potiphar's wife. Story tells us that Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph and over and over and over again. And, and we'll break that down in, in, in a few minutes when we get to that other part of that story. And the next thing we know is that she blames, Potter, she blames Joseph for something that he didn't do. And, and Joseph ends up in the prison in Egypt in Pharaoh's palace, the head honcho. And we find that Joseph is there in prison in Egypt in the Pharaoh's palace and years are going by. Joseph is growing physically, spiritually, mentally. And these two guys, two employees of Pharaoh, have these dreams. And they're talking about it. And Joseph looks over and he's like, hey, by the way, guys, I know what those dreams mean. And he gives them the interpretation. They're like, oh, great, thanks. And then he says, oh, and by the way, when you go before Pharaoh, please remember me. Nothing happens. More years go by. Then we find in the story, Pharaoh has a dream. And all the wizards and sages of Pharaoh's court begin to talk. And they're like, hey, I think there's a guy around here who, who knows what these dreams mean. And, and I don't know what they mean. Do you know what they mean? And, and they can't come to an understanding. And they say, well, let's just give this guy a try. And so they go before Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, bring up this young man. So they bring him up out of prison. They present him before Pharaoh, and, and, and Joseph gives the interpretation of this dream to Pharaoh, and it's spot on. And, and God gives Joseph favor with Pharaoh, and before we know it, Joseph is in the land of Egypt. And it says that Pharaoh gave Joseph his signet ring, meaning that if, if Pharaoh went on vacation, Joseph was in command. He was in charge over the entire nation of Egypt, the armies. The wealth, everything. That's how close Joseph was to Pharaoh. And that's how entrusted he was. And so Joseph ends up telling Pharaoh, hey, there's going to be this famine and people are going to be hungry. And so we need to prepare for this. And Pharaoh takes to it. And a long story short, a famine goes across the land. And Joseph realizes that eventually his family is going to show up because they're hungry and they need some food. And that's where we pick up this morning. Because you've got to understand this life of Joseph, it, isn't, it, it just isn't about Joseph going to the pit, then to the prison, 
and then to the palace. It doesn't end there. This is our roadmap. This is our roadmap for contending for the promise that God has given to each and every single one of us. So look with me this morning in Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42, starting in verse 6. It says, Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them, and he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. Our promise is coming. Our promise is coming. But we have to do our part as individuals while God does his part. We cannot have this mentality where we're just going to wait on God for him just to do everything for us. We cannot have this mentality of our mind that, that great, God gave me this promise. He's going to see it through. He's going to make it happen. Now I'll just hang out. No. According to the word, it shows us that we have to do our part just as much as God is doing his part. And this is why fulfillment comes through contending. Fulfillment comes through contending. We got to contend for it. If God has given you a promise, you got to contend for it. It's the only way that you're going to see it come to pass. When we read the life of Joseph and when we really dig into to who this man was and all that he went through, we can see that there was a contending heart within this young boy as he slowly became a man. It's interesting that we can see because just moments ago in this scripture, it says that his family, his brothers came to him and they bowed down before him. And we say, oh wait, oh, that's part of the dream. The dream's coming true. No, it's not because something was missing. Joseph's father was missing and one of Joseph's brothers were missing. The God dream was incomplete. The promise was incomplete. Nothing was able to happen yet. He was willing to be unsettled regardless of what his circumstances said. See, in that moment, Joseph could have looked, he could have stood there and he went, one, two, three, four, and he could have done the math. And he could be like, okay, that's good enough. They're bowing before me. I know dad's missing. I know the youngest is missing. Hey, you know what? This is close enough. I'll take it, right? How many of us ever do that out of our own strength? God, you gave me the promise. So, you know, I'll, I'll do you a favor. I'll just start moving ahead of you. I got this. 
Oh, it takes money? No problem. I've got tons of that, tons of that. My checking account's overflowing. Oh, God, I know you promised this. I just don't feel like waiting around, so I'll do the work for you. See, Joseph was not willing to settle. He was not willing to move out of God's order in order for his promise to come to pass. Because God had given him this promise when he was a teenager. If we read the scriptures and study it, what we don't understand is that Joseph was in prison for 20 years. 20 years. Are you willing to contend for your promise for 20 years? The God promise has been given to you. Are you willing to be unsettled? Are you willing to contend until God gives it to you, no matter what amount of time it takes to see it come to pass, to see it fulfilled? Spent a lot of time reading about Joseph. And I think about all of the garbage that he went through. And I think about his attitude. I thought, how did he get through this? How did he get through all the rejection? Because, I mean, he was rejected by his family completely. And some of us here, we understand what rejection feels like, right? And, and, and we think about all the rejection, and, and then we think about the temptation that he faced. He wasn't this ugly guy. Like, he was this handsome-looking man who was well-built, and, and, and he's put in this position where he's in Potiphar's house, and it says that Potiphar's wife ran after him and tempted him. In fact, the actual Hebrew says that she changed her clothes in the afternoon. And what that actually means is that when Potiphar would leave his house, she would strip down completely nude and continue about her household business. Flaunting herself before Joseph, waiting for the moment for him to be tempted, to be taken advantage of. But Joseph remained righteous. He overcame the temptation. He contended for the fulfilling of his promise that God had given him. And I think about that, like how many of us face that on a daily basis? And then he goes from there and he's placed in prison, not for like five days. He doesn't even have a chance to see the judge. He doesn't have a chance to see the Pharaoh. And he's put in prison, not for five days, for 20 years. Some of us here, we can relate, right? We've been locked into something for 20 years. But God has said otherwise. And some of us here, you've lost hope. You've lost hope because you have been imprisoned in whatever it may be. And you're reaching that 20-year mark and and you just say, I don't even believe it anymore. If God really does have a promise for me, it'll take a miracle. But your promise is coming. Your promise is coming. And I think about the culture that Joseph faced. This was an anti-God culture. Everything about it was anti-God. They believed in God's lowercase g. They did their sacrifices to God, just like the Israelites sacrificed to the God. They believed in prayer, but it was all lowercase gods. And the temptation that he faced with culture and what culture said against him, things that all of us face on a regular basis as Christ followers. So I got to thinking, how in the world did he do this? And I I returned back to Psalm 146 too. 
And this is what it says. While I live, I will praise Hashem. I will sing praise unto Eloah while I have any being. That word Hashem is another name for God. It means a merciful, compassionate one. Last time I preached, I talked about the word Azamorah. It comes out of Psalms 146, meaning that even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of what's going on within me, where there's a place where there's hopelessness and rejection, and where there's a place where I just wonder if God is still there, there's still this little speck of livelihood of the presence of God within me. And if I can just grab a hold of it, I will begin to praise him with every ounce of my being that is left at all costs. Azamarah. Joseph had to understand Azamarah. He had to understand Psalm 146. Imprisonment, in temptation, facing anti-God culture, knowing that he had a promise that was coming from God. He had to find that little speck in the darkest place of his heart that he could bring forth praise to the merciful, compassionate one. Are you willing to contend through praising God in the midst of your circumstance to see your promise come forth? Last time I talked about taking every complaint and turning it into a praise. Are you doing that? Are you living out Azamara? I'll never forget the last time I preached, it was only three days after I had preached. And it's funny how God just applies things and accelerates things after you're done preaching. But I had a person that I met with and I met with them face to face and they said some really, really nasty things to me. And the reality was, is I had every right to annihilate them verbally with scripture, with conviction, and with truth. You know what I did? I looked at them and I said, you know what? I'm going to do you a favor and I'm going to go get blessed. And I'm just going to go praise Jesus right now. That's what I'm going to do. (laughs) And I turned around and I walked away. And I dug really deep past all the words that I wanted to scream and I wanted to shout and I wanted to declare. And even though it was truth, I dug through it all and I got down to the core of it and I said, Asamara, I will give you the very last breath of my praise so that you can be glorified. Praising God in the midst of our circumstances causes us to refocus on him. Not ourselves, not our circumstance. It refreshes us for what is ahead and it helps us to keep our promise in perspective. Because the more we complain, the more we lose track of the promise that God has given us. And the more we praise him, the more of a fresh perspective we get on the promise that is coming to us that he originally gave us. And the only way to contend is through consistent praise. And we just have to do it. Do it! Just do it! Don't let your dreams be dreams. Yesterday, you said tomorrow. So just do it! Make your dreams come true! Just do it! Some people dream of success while you're going to wake up and work hard at it. Nothing is impossible!
You should get to the point where anyone else would quit, and you're not going to stop there. No, what are you waiting for? Do it! Just do it! Yes, you can! Just do it! If you're tired of starting over, stop giving up. I contacted Shiloh, but he couldn't make it today. So I just had to go with the video. That is everything summed up that I really want to say this morning in a nutshell. We got to do it. We got to do it. We just got to do it. If you want your promise, if you really want your promise, the promise that is coming to you, you have to contend for it. You have to do your part. You have to praise God. You just have to do it. You have to dig deep in those moments when you don't want to, when you don't feel like it, when you have disbelief, and you got to dig deep into that place of praise just like Joseph did. And you got to do it. Because your promise is coming. But we must, must be understood that it's bigger than me. It's bigger than me. Why don't you say that out loud? It's bigger than me. We've got to say it again. It's bigger than me. Now, I want you to look at your neighbor and look at him and point to yourself and say, it's bigger than me. One more time, it's bigger than me. It is. It's bigger than all of us. The promise that God has for you is bigger than yourself. That's hard for us. It's hard for us because it's our promise, right? It's our promise. God gave the promise to me. So if it's my promise, then it's about me. And God is saying, no, it's not. It's, it's bigger than you. You're just the vehicle that I'm going to use. Joseph understood this. Joseph understood that it was bigger than him. He grasped it. it was, he was contending for a promise that went beyond his arrival at the palace. I got to thinking about this. When Joseph arrived at that palace, he had everything that he needed. He had wealth. He had happiness. He had materials. He had food. He had shelter. He had everything that he needed. At the snap of his fingers, anything that he willed could be done. But something was missing. His promise. He realized he had to contend, but he also realized that it was bigger than him. Look with me at Genesis 45. Genesis 45, verse 5. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it is not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Did you catch that? Twice, Joseph says, it's not about me. 
twice. He says, God sent me ahead of you. God, God sent me ahead of you. You thought that you were going to get rid of me. You thought that you were going to destroy me. And and God had a different plan because he gave me a promise and he was going to see it fulfilled. And he sent me ahead of you. And then he follows up and he says, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Wow. That is spiritual maturity. (laughs) That is spiritual maturity. Because Joseph resisted temptation of Potiphar's wife, and he chose to resist the temptation of an anti-God culture, he remained a remnant in the land that God could use, not only to save himself, but to save others. The promise is bigger than you. I understand that you may feel that you're ready to receive your promise. But there's a reason why your promise is being held up. And it's not because God wants to punish you. It's not because God wants to dangle it over your head like a carrot to a donkey. It's not that he's getting good joy out of it. And it's not that he's forgotten. It's simply because you're not ready. I know some of you are appalled by that because I don't know you directly, but I'm telling you straight up scripturally, you're not ready. I know that there's promises in my life that I'm contending for, and I am waiting for God to fulfill, but I also know that I'm not ready. And here's why. We must be at a place spiritually with our character that we can actually handle the weight of the promise that God is going to place upon us. Think about Joseph when he was put into that pit. Where was his attitude? Where was his heart? Where was his thought life? If God would have placed the fullness of that promise onto Joseph while he was in the midst of that pit, it would have crushed him. He wouldn't have able to been, to be able to withstand the fullness of that promise coming to pass. He would have been crushed. But that 20 years in imprisonment, Joseph's character was being turned, cultivated, readied for the promise that God would have, the fullness of the promise. And when Joseph stepped into that place of favor with Pharaoh, God said, now is the time. His character is ready. It can withhold the promise of what I'm going to give. And he placed it on him and it didn't crush him. If you want your promise got to realize it's bigger than you. And if it's bigger than you, you have to go before Hashem, the compassionate, merciful one, and you have to say to him, here I am. I'm laying myself out before you. Nothing is hidden. Here it is. Now you tell me, what do I have to do? What do I have to do with you to get to that place where my character is prepared to handle the fullness of the promise that you have for me? And I guarantee you that when you begin to work with God instead of against him, things will begin to speed up. But for every moment that you resist, every moment that you resist the process that God wants to place you through, the longer it will take for the fulfillment of your promise to come. 
I think about Joseph when he was in the prison and he looked for his opportunity and he said to the two employer employees, he says, hey, don't forget about me. Tell Pharaoh what I'm capable of doing. Does that sound familiar? Don't forget about my skills. Hey, tell them that I'm really good at what I do. Wink, wink, cough, cough, elbow, elbow. He had to have come to this place of Azamara, but not only that, he came to this place where he said, "Mm, okay, God, I realize I'm not ready. I realize I can't handle the promise. So let's get back on your timetable and do what you need us to do. Finally, I leave you with this. Your promise is coming, but obedience always precedes favor. Obedience always precedes favor. I looked up that word favor because I like the word, but I use it a lot, and then sometimes you forget the meaning. And so the word favor is defined as an attitude of approval or an act of kindness beyond what is due or usual. So if we put it in this context, our obedience to God always paves the way for his attitude of approval. And it paves the way for acts of kindness beyond the usual. How many of you want that? Just a few of you. Okay, good. Good luck. Good. Majority of you are sleeping then. How many of you want that from God? You want the favor of God? Yeah. Everyone wants it, whether we want to admit it or not. None of us wake up in the morning and say, gosh, I hope God hates me today. I hope he doesn't give me his favor. (laughs) It's going to be a great day. No, we wake up and we want the favor of God. Sometimes we're not even willing to ask for the favor of God. God wants to be in favor of us and give us his favor. And this is demonstrated by Joseph in the way of his living. Look with me really quick at Genesis 45. It says this, Tell my father all about the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Like, so what does that have to do with favor of God? It's a lot. Because if you break down the Hebrew context and you understand this, it was a message that Joseph was sending to his father. See, being a Jew in a nation of Egypt clashes real bad. Joseph was a Jew. and He was in the midst of an anti-God culture. And he says to his Brothers, send word to my father that I've been obedient to my covenant with God. Send word to my father that that I've been obedient to the covenant that I made with my God and I made with him. And let him know, let him know not to worry that he can come here and he will not be distracted and overwhelmed by the anti-God culture that is here in this place because the spirit of God has been brought here because of the covenant I have kept. That's what Joseph was saying. He's giving this message to his father. I've kept my covenant. I've I've remained obedient. And therefore the favor of God has gone before me and kept me even in the midst of this anti-God culture. If you want your promise, you're going to have to be obedient. 
And I can't stand here today and tell you and say, this is what you got to do to be obedient. Because being a Christ follower, there are general directives that God says blatantly, if you love me, be obedient. Don't do this, do this. We know that. But there are areas of our lives where God looks at us and he puts his finger so gently and he says, that is not obedience to me. And only you and him will know what that is. But are you tired of him putting your, his finger on the same spot over and over and over again? Saying, that's not obedience to me? Is it wearing you out? Your favor for your promise will come when you're willing to be obedient in that area of your life. Because that obedience always precedes the favor, the approval of God. Sacrifice, in our terminology, we always gruel over because sacrifice is giving up something that we cherish, something that we love, right? It's our concept. Like we, you know, I, I don't want to sacrifice. If I have to sacrifice this, I will. Well, the Lord's telling me to sacrifice this. Oh, it's so painful. It's so awful. But that's not the biblical concept of sacrifice. The reason you would give a sacrifice to the Lord is so not only out of obedience, but that sin could be pushed aside so you could go up closer to God in your relationship with him. That's biblical sacrifice. So when a family would go to the place of the altar to the priest and say, we need to sacrifice no one went like this. And we're going to sacrifice today. I got to give up. I just got that new robe, but, but God's telling me I got to give that robe up from mom and dad. I got to sacrifice. Praise God. <laughs> Doing it for you, Lord. That's not what they did. They went with joy. Because they knew that their sins were going to be atoned for. And they knew that when those sins were atoned for, it was going to create a space. There was going to no longer be a blockage between them and God. And it was going to open up a path and it was going to elevate them closer to the presence of God, which they had been lacking. They were excited for sacrifice. That's obedience. And if you want favor with the Almighty surrounding your coming promise, obedience must come first. And one more thing about sacrifice, and then I'll close. In biblical sacrifice, God gave direct instruction that nothing would be wasted. Every part of the animal had a purpose. Every part, look at it in scripture. Every part of the animal was never wasted, which tells us this. Whatever it is that God calls us to sacrifice, not one bit of it will be wasted. Not one bit of it will be lost. Because what we're about to encounter is far greater than what we're giving up. But none of it will be wasted. I'm going to ask you to stand. This morning, if you're here, 
And you can say deep down inside that there is a promise that you've been contending for. And you haven't seen it come to pass. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand right where you're at. Only you know what this promise is. I'm not asking you to declare it. I just want you to raise your hand. This is your sign of surrender to the Lord. And saying back to him that I haven't given up hope. I haven't seen my promise yet, but I'm going to contend for it. I haven't seen my promise yet, but I know it's coming. And I know that it's bigger than me today. I know that it's bigger than me. And therefore, I will choose obedience so that your favor will come on this promise. And let me finish prophesying this over you. This morning, the Lord declares over you that your promise is coming. And it's not delayed. And he's not forgotten it. And it's right on time according to his time. Your promise is coming. Amen. Enjoy your week.